Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible. That is the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of literary genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in the world, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here is the deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get some Sylvia Plath. That ought to cheer you up. Get some Ann Sexton. Get Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Just about any book at Audible can be yours, free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps this program. I get a few pennies. Uh, that's nice. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two talking heads. This is thousands of listening heads. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining me. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and I am sitting here, and I'm looking at a cow. I'm actually looking at two cows. I have two cows on my desk that I might have mentioned once or twice before, but I keep them on my desk. Uh, my wife gave them to me. They're small plastic, rubber, petroleum-based cows. And uh, I keep them because I like them. And that's what I'm looking at right now. So uh, a lot to get to today, a lot on the agenda. First up, I'm going to be talking for just a few minutes with Ron Curry Jr. Uh, he was actually the guest on this podcast in its earliest phase. I believe it was episode four, episode four, which you can listen to in full uh, in the other people archives. And so I'm going to talk to him. And then I'm after, after I'm done talking to him, uh, we'll get on to Kate Zambrino and her excellent book, Heroines. So first up, Mr. Curry, Ron Curry Jr. He's one of my favorite contemporary writers. Uh, he's somebody I admire a great deal, and I'm very pleased that we're featuring his new novel uh, called Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles in the TNB Book Club, uh, The Nervous Breakdown 
book club. And uh, for those of you who don't know, TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online literary blog and community. We have our own monthly book club, and it costs uh, it costs only $9.99 a month. And for that price, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. And the titles are selected by Jonathan Evison, uh, another fine writer and a buddy of mine who works with me over at The Nervous Breakdown, uh, curating the book club. So the deal is a good one, $9.99 a month. Uh, that's less than the cost of a book. And better yet, uh, all of the book club authors are then featured on this program. So you can read the book and then you can listen to me in conversation with the person who wrote the book. So if you want to sign up for the book club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. It's a great way to support the literary uh, arts and it obviously helps me keep the nervous breakdown going and it helps me keep this program uh, on the air. Is it on the air? Is a podcast on the air? You know what I'm saying, okay? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So let's get to Ron Curry first. Here he is, Ron Curry Jr. And his new book, once again, is called Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles. It is a novel due out from Viking on February 11th, 2013. I'm sitting here in, in gym shorts at, uh, what, 2.30 in the afternoon Eastern. It's about eight degrees outside. Um, I was actually thinking about that earlier. This is a really f the first serious cold snap that we've had in Maine uh, since winter started. And it always reminds me when I go on the road and I talk to people and, and you know, they find out that I'm from Maine. They're like, oh, Maine, it's so beautiful there. I love Maine. It's gorgeous. The family has a summer place on the coast. Yeah, yeah. You should come here in January. <laughs> right, right. So wait, now, and you get out, I mean, do you, it seems like the last couple of years, at least, you get out of Maine during the winter for a, a spell and you go to the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not this year. Mostly because the book's coming out next month and it didn't really, I like to go, you know, the most expensive thing about going down there is the airfare. I actually, there's a place that I rent that's really, really cheap. I pay about the same to rent a place there as I do here. Um, so it's Caribbean property that I rent for a pittance. And so getting back and forth is the, the, the major expense. And this year with the book coming out in February, it would have been, you know, I'd go down there for two weeks and then come back. Uh, and I'd go down for another week and come back. And that was just, I figured I would just stick it out here this year and actually, you know, earn my bona fides as a manor, as a native born manor. I was going to say, so like, how, how are you, how are you holding up? Cause like I grew up in winter. So like, it can be, you know, in the heart of Where winter. Where did you grow up? Uh, like Milwaukee and in, in Indiana. 
Oh, that's even worse. Yeah. I mean, you know, From what so, I understand. Uh, you know, Milwaukee, good winters because there's some redeeming qualities and there's a way. Like, I find that winter is okay as long as you can access it. Like, if you can go out and ski or you can cross-country ski. That's what everybody says, you know, and I, I've done a little bit of that. At, you know, my girlfriend's got me into cross-country skiing. and um, But to me, that's more like, depending on what kind of day it is, that's more like killing time until spring. You know, <laughs> it's, it's the only alternative to just sitting in a house and moping for four or five months. Right. right. Uh, well, but the thing about it is, like, in Indiana, it's just, like, gray, and then there's, like, sleet, you know, and so there's not even snow and that's like that to me is oppressive because then you're just sort of which like, is actually worse. It's yeah. totally worse. There's nothing worse than like 32.5 degrees and raining. Right. It's miserable. Right. 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 So, um, talk about like the islands, the Caribbean, uh, and maybe just like you know, as as um as a part of that discussion, maybe like talk about the origin story for uh, flimsy little plastic miracles. Yeah. Well, I've been going down to this little tiny island off the eastern coast of the main island of Puerto Rico. It's called Vieques. Um, it's a tiny little place. It's about five miles wide, about 15 miles long, about 10,000 people live there. And for the better part of, gosh, I guess it was about 50 years, um, the island was primarily a uh, bombing range for the Navy. Um, and so the legacy of that is, is very much imprinted upon the island and its people. I think they stopped bombing in 2001, um, and they have since been cleaning up stray ordnance and unexploded ordnance all over the bays and the and the areas, the outlying areas of the island. Um, but it's a it's a funky place, man. It's like um, I have I have friends who manage properties, vacation properties there, and, and um, there was one friend in particular who he went to pick up this couple at the airport, which is really just a you know a strip of pavement. It's not an airport proper, um, and he was bringing them to the property that they had rented. By the time they got there, the woman was in tears. It was a couple from New Jersey. And, uh, cause she was looking, I mean, I guess she was expecting Aruba and it's certainly not Aruba. That's not what this place is. It's very, it's sort of feral. Um, if you've ever been to a place like St. John, I always say that, that Vieques is St. John. Well, St. John would be Vieques if Vieques took a shower and got a haircut, basically. <laughs> um, lots of wild horses and feral dogs and, and, uh, it's just sort of a wild place. And, and last year, actually, it goes through these cycles of, of violence, too, like any other place where, you know, I think the unemployment rate there is something like 70 percent, um, which is, you know, it's outrageous. One of the things about the Navy being there is that it used to bring a lot of money. And now that they're gone, that money's gone with them. Um, but last year, there was a lot of... Uh, it's funny because there was this spate of violence that was going on, lots of armed robberies. And this is a small place. So if you're, you know... If there's a bar that's getting robbed at gunpoint, chances are you're not too far away from it or you might even be there. Um, and these guys were going out. It was, it was a group of, I think, three kids turned out to be teenagers. Um, and they robbed a place called, it started at Mar Azul, which is a bar on the opposite side of the island from where I was staying. And they went in with spear guns and one of them had like a nine millimeter. And they're wearing ski masks and they ended up shooting one of the guys who owned the place. And then they were taking pot shots at people at another resort. Um, there was a guy who got brained with a rock in his shower and somebody took 600 bucks from him. This stuff was all happening in the course of like a week, week and a half. So wait, and, uh, which, I do have to raise a question. Like where does somebody get a ski mask in Vieques? <laughs> <laughs> it's a valid question. I mean, chances are if you find, if you find somebody who owns a ski mask in Vieques, you find your, your, uh, 
you found the guy that's responsible. But, uh, yeah, exactly. So the way the way that it ended up going was, and this is something that uh, somebody explained to me was is sort of a common occurrence down there when things get out of hand in this way, is that the the people who live there sort of police themselves. Um, you know, the police force there is notoriously inept, and uh, the way that I heard it, the way that it was explained to me was. Um, the guy who's responsible for most of the drug trade on the island got upset with these kids because people were staying inside and they weren't coming out and buying his, uh, his wares. And so he ended up taking care of them himself. Um, so that's the kind of place that it is. And I love it, but it's definitely not. I mean, if you want to go to, you know, if you want to be on a carnival cruise or you want to be in an all inclusive beach resort, it's definitely not the place to go. So, so what is it like when you go down there? Like, how long are you down there typically? Like the past couple of winters, it's, it seems like what a month or six weeks, or is it longer? Uh, usually longer. Usually a couple months. Uh, sometimes as long as three. Okay. The winters here are pretty long. I mean, you can't. You sort of have to like strategize because, you know, last year I stuck around until just after Christmas, and I was in Vieques for New Year's, and I stayed. We ended up having to come back early because of something that was going on, but um, we stayed until the middle of March. Um, and travel back and forth a little bit, but not much. I mean, there's no reason to leave. I was actually just thinking about it. Uh, I was sitting on my porch smoking and freezing my ass off, and I was thinking, it's 82 degrees and sunny with a few passing showers in Vegas right now, because that's the way the weather is every single day in the summer. It just never changes. It's, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. so So you're down there, you're with your girlfriend, like you go down, or do you go down there alone? Like you're, you're down there with someone, right? Um, well, it depends. Okay. Uh, her, her job is, she actually has a job unlike me. So <laughs> she, she has things that she has to do here, even in the winter. So she goes down when she can, but it's, I spend solid chunks of time there by myself, which is part of the reason why I'm able to get so much work done down there. I was going to say, cause like, how does it, how does it factor in for you work-wise? Like, and, and then like, what kind of life do you lead if you are down there alone? Like how ascetic is it? And like, do you have any kind of social life? Did you befriend natives or whatever? Like, do you know, are you going out like at night to the bar? You know? I don't go out too much, especially if I'm there by myself. You know, when I first went down there, the idea was to work and it's sort of, it's sort of paradoxical because you think, okay, you're going to paradise. Last thing you're going to want to do is work. But, um, for me being in Maine in the winter is actually antithetical to work. You know, the days are seven hours long and it's just miserable. And I sort of can't get out of my own way. I mean, I was supposed to be working on an essay today and instead I'm getting caught up on uh, the West wing, which is now available it's in its entirety on Netflix. <laughs> right. um, so that's the sort of thing that happens to me here. But when I'm down there, it's sort of a combination of, of pretty abject isolation. If you want it, it's, it's on, it's on offer. And then that's combined with being sort of disconnected from the world, like internet and phone wise. Um, there is internet service there, but it's really, really spotty to the point where you just sort of, you sort of give up on using it on a regular basis. That's great. So it's this forced isolation that occurs, you know, um, and it lends itself to, to work, but it also lends itself to, to, uh, you know, I think I told you about, an incident that I had, or I hadn't spoken to anybody for four or five days. And then I went up to the bar and I could just feel how weird I was being. Right. You know, and I was willing myself, willing myself to stop being weird. But, but each effort that I made to stop being weird just made me weirder. Um, and you have that sense that you're just not connecting with people and that can happen, but, but it's good for the work. Yeah. So talk about how, uh, you got uh, flimsy little plastic miracles done. Like how much of it was written down there what was the what was the process like? I mean, did, were, were there? I mean, I, I think I recall from 
like Facebook updates from Puerto Rico. You know, it's weird how you pick stuff up with social media because sure. it's like yeah. spotty. But like I remember like, you know, there was a moment where I thought I think you thought the novel wasn't working and then you had to rewrite a big chunk of it. Or am I misremembering this? No, all that happens. And and the fact of the matter is, I mean, it was just um, most of the time it's not working, right? I mean, <laughs> especially when you're working on a first draft, is the level of, of self-doubt and self-recrimination and self-editing and self-loathing that goes on. I don't know about for you, but for me, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. No, me too. And, and so, you know, that's one of the interesting things about being connected all the time and, and having the ability to sort of spew yourself into other people's lives on a whim is that those things come through in a way that they, because they're passing, they wouldn't, you know, 20 years ago, people wouldn't know. You wouldn't be able to say to me, well, I, you know, I recall that there was a time when you were struggling with the book because I wouldn't have been broadcasting it. Um, but now, you know, it's, it, it would be an interesting exercise actually for me to go back and look through all my Facebook and Twitter updates from that period and to see what sort of mental state I was in regarding the work. Right. Um, I'm sure at times it was pretty grim. So how do you, so how do you like okay so how do you get through all that you know what I'm saying it's like it's one thing to have that which I think is actually really common and I think most people listening who write will be able to identify with it but it's like it's a different thing entirely to push through until you reach the point where the thing works and is uh, ready for publication so like right. how do you manage that part of it Well I think about the fact that I'm contractually obligated to do so <laughs> and then I just do it Right <laughs> I mean, that's the short, like, half-jokey answer. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I think that we push through those those difficult periods for the same reason that we do it in the first place, and then we're compelled to do it. There's really no other reason to do it unless it's a genuine compulsion. Um, you know, it's, it's the effort. For me, it's the effort to come as close with the execution as I can to the moment of inspiration. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's that, that, that moment when you, when you conceive of something. And it's perfect in your mind and you can actually almost like turn it in your mind's eye. You can turn it around and, and view it from every angle and it's a shimmering, perfect object. And then the moment you set pen to paper, it becomes flawed and it becomes slowly but surely and incrementally more flawed as time goes on. And then, and then you have those paroxysms of self-doubt and self-loathing and then you work through them and then you, you know, you try to, to move uh, or, or mold the object to something more closely resembling what it was when you conceived of it. Um, but it's all a compulsion. It's not, for me, it's not, uh, I think it was Lonegut who said that he never met a blacksmith who was in love with his anvil. And that was his response to people asking him whether or not he did what he loved or, or telling him that he was doing what he wanted to do or, or doing what he loved. Um, so it's sort of like that. It's like, you know, you just keep banging away on it. Um, and this because you don't really have much. Okay, and you've talked about your process, you know, your writing process, and for, for whatever reason, there's a couple like there's some words in our in our culture that are common that always make me sort of uh, wince. Like one of them is brand, and then another one is process. But you can't avoid them almost. And um, you know, when you talk, I, I think I've I've read interviews with you, or if I've talked to you before about um, you know how you approach a book length project, and you know, some of us are really um, uh, you know, type A and we outline and we preconceive and we have the thing charted right, out and, right. we, and we do all of our prep and our, it's like pre-production. And then I think the other major way of working is intuitive. And I think that's the category you fall under. So with, yeah. And I think it's pretty obvious in my work, right? I mean, it's sort of, 
uh, it's pretty obvious that it's, it's sort of a freestyle, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like, it's the literary equivalent of the human beatbox or like a, a jazz riff. Right. Um, I was which, is, say. which is not to say that I don't spend a lot of time rewriting because I do, but um, one of the dangers that I run into with revisions over and over again that I'm really um, sort of cognizant of now is losing some of that vitality in the rewrite, making something too polished. And it, it's something that I really want to avoid. And I think on the front end, that's why I avoid doing things like, um, like outlining and, and summarizing or, or writing up a synopsis beforehand, because it, there's a, it smacks of a um, determinism that I don't, that I don't think benefits my work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting point about making something overwrought because you know, there's like, a, I think perfectionist tendencies um, are common among artists and it's really easy to fall into that thing where, you know, you're, you're writing and it never feels quite right and it can always be polished more and more and you can, you can fuck something up doing that. You know, like you can take a perfectly good yeah. or even great piece of art and you can mess it up and you, you know. I mean, even, even somebody, even somebody like Carver talked about, and I'm, and I'm talking about like Gordon Lish era Carver before he wrote Cathedral when it was when those stories were as stripped down as they could possibly be and still make sense, you know, and he talked about at length, the law of diminishing returns. And he said something about when you take up, was it a period or a comma? You know, the quote I'm talking about, he said, you know, you're finished with something when you take a, a period out or a comma out and then put it back in and then take it back out. That's when you know you're done revising. Right. And you're just sort of second guessing every move that you make, even something as minuscule as punctuation. Yeah, and then at that point you're just spinning your wheels, and like it's I don't know, it's a discipline, and it's part of being I think a good artist is just knowing when to step away. Yeah, yeah. and and you know it's it's um, you never get any better at it, I don't think. At least that's been my experience. You know, it, it's not like one of the analogies that I've used over the years is that of a like a general surgeon, and a general surgeon can do like an appendectomy, probably literally with his eyes closed because it's such a simple procedure, and, and it's something that they do so often. Um, to me, writing a book is sort of like that, except that the real trick of it is that every patient that you operate on has a completely different anatomy. So it's about finding the, the appendix. Removing it isn't the hard part. It's about locating it. Um, and you never, you can never get better at that by nature of, by the nature of it, because you know, everything, every time you sit down to write a new book, it's, it's just that it's a new book. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so in, with like, within the context of that analogy, like what is the appendix? The, an appendix is equivalent to a book or is it like a chapter? Do you know what I'm saying? Like how small does it get when you talk? Well, about I it? think it's, to me, it's the moment when you, you know, the process of writing a book is about, for me, it's about discovering what the book is, what it is. And, um, you know, I've been experiencing it a lot more frequently as of late because I've been writing a lot of essays. And so they're obviously a lot shorter than a novel. And it's, you know, I, I find myself sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and pondering and pondering and pondering and turning the thing over in my mind. And then there's a moment when suddenly it takes shape. I know what it needs to be. And that's when I start working in earnest. And then it happens very quickly after that. It's the same thing for me with the book. And just sort of noodle my way through a bunch of pages. And, and I know it's not what it's going to ultimately end up being yet. But I also, at this point, have done it so many times that I have faith that that process is going to lead me to the point where I do understand what it needs to be. And then I can get started in earnest on it. So what about uh, like the publication moment? Because this is your third book. 
third book, right? It's God is Dead, Everything Matters, and then this one. You got it. Okay. And so, you know, God is Dead um, and Everything Ma- <clears throat> excuse me, Everything Matters, both, uh, you know, critically acclaimed. Uh, God is Dead won you the Young Lions Fiction Award. You've had good, you know, you've, you've had good things happen. Uh, sure, yeah. you know, for a lit a writer, which I need to remind, I need to remind myself of that almost daily. Yeah. You know, you have, you had like an excellent start to your career and, um, but you know, that, you know, I, I know that the, the moment of public, of uh, publication can sometimes be anticlimactic. I think that, um, you know, there's also the burden of expectations as you publish, um, uh, multiple books that maybe didn't exist sure. with the first one. So like, where do you sit right now with that as uh, flimsy little plastic miracles, uh, is about to, to drop? Well, it's the same. I mean, it's like you said, it's an anticlimax, and that's that's what I fully expect. You know, we're, I think, exactly three weeks removed from the, the date of publication, and I'll go out on tour, um, and I'll meet a lot of nice people who are fans of what I do, and then it'll be great. Um, but it's funny. I mean, you and I were talking about actually going into the store and seeing your book on the shelf on the day of publication, and then it's just sort of like, well, I guess that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, there's no, there's no, like, world premiere party that you go to, and then it's in a tuxedo with a beautiful woman in a, in a nice dress on your arm. It's just not that way, um, which is fine. I, I'm, I don't think that I would prefer that, but it, there's just this, uh, there is that moment when you, you wake up on the day of publication and maybe you have some, you know, some misses from people who you're, you're closely involved with in publishing the book, but other than that, it's just another day really. Um, and, and maybe that's okay. I mean, I, I, the more, the closer I get to publishing my third book, my attitude and my apprehension of it has changed considerably. Um, and I, I sort of have this, uh, I'm much more calm about it than I was with the first two books. I have very, very little in the way of expectations. Uh, I'm pleased with the book that I wrote and, and I'm hoping that that will, uh, that'll remain true through the, the course of publica- publication and, and reviews and, you know, the, the ups and downs of that. You gonna read, are you going to read reviews? Do you do that? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm being encouraged this time around not to, um, and with good reasons. I don't think that I have the self-discipline to stay away from it, though. But why, and, I, and I honestly... Why are, you being I, encur- I, why are you being encouraged not to? Um, because I take it pretty hard sometimes. Um, and... You know, the, it's it's been more of a discussion rather than people saying you definitely shouldn't read reviews. But it's, it's been more of a process of like you should consider the possibility that maybe you shouldn't pay attention to it. It's more like that. <laughs> right, right. It would be um, it would be nice, right? It would, life would be easier if like you could just be like you know turn that channel off and whatever you know. Like I, have... I guess so, but at the same time, I mean, you know, anybody who says that they write for themselves, I I'm not saying that they're full of shit. I I, I have a difficult time believing that. Um, you know, to my way of thinking, if you, it's a fairly simple thing. If you write for yourself, you write for yourself. You never show it to the world. You don't endeavor to publish it. You just, you write something and then you say, well, okay, I, I did that. And then you shelf it. Um, I think the moment that we start getting involved in trying, even the endeavoring to publish our work, um, we're doing it because we want some sort of interface with other people. Yeah. Um, and inevitably, if that, if that's true, then it must be true that we care about the, the, the quality of that interaction or the outcome of it. Um, so it's hard. I mean, I, I want to know what people think of the book and, um, and I wanted to, I want people to connect with it in some way. I mean, it's, there's nothing to me that's more satisfying and more sort of unadulterated 
than hearing from somebody who's enjoyed a book that I wrote. I mean, that ultimately that's why I do this because I want to give, I want to be on, to me reading has always been a conversation and I want to create something that, that's, that gives people the sort of, what's the word? It gives them the sense of having been transformed in some way in the way that I've been transformed by all the best books that I've read. Yeah, you know, it's part of a it's part of a continuum. Yeah, okay. exactly. It's like it's like uh, you know, it's like magic. You know, it's like you want to you, you liked a magician, uh, or a magician did a trick for you when you were a kid that blew your mind, and now you want to be able to sure. do magic tricks. Essentially, you know. Yeah, yeah. That was a guy guy in, in here in Waterville where I grew up. A guy named Al Corey who owned a music shop. And when I was a kid, we would always, whenever we went in there, he would always perform a magic trick. It was just something that he did. He was one of those like salt of the earth, very homey kind of guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, if we don't care, if, if somebody genuinely doesn't care about what other people think of what they've done, then I, I don't understand why they're, why they're involved in this in the first place. I really don't. Yeah, that seems disingenuous. I mean, I understand like having to write for yourself because, you know, or having to write out of some deep personal drive or compulsion or need or whatever, but ultimately if you're if you're going to the trouble to find an agent and get a book published or to publish it yourself or whatever you do um you know if you're distributing the book and putting it on sale then you're obviously interested in having a dialogue with readers <laughs> right right and and i think that you know as far as reviews are concerned i i definitely believe that people ignore reviews or or, or avoid reviews i do believe that um i just don't have and i, I think it's probably smart and healthy uh, I just don't have the, the self-discipline to do it. I mean, I could resolve not to. Let's say, you know, the the San Francisco Chronicle runs a review the day the book comes out or the day after, and I hear that it came out, that this, this review was run. I might last a day, <laughs> maybe a day and a half. But there's going to be a moment probably after a couple of drinks when I get on the, I get on the computer and I poke around and I find it. Yeah. I, I just know that about myself. It's going to happen. And so... You know, resolving to not do it and then breaking down and doing it anyway would be just another layer of like shame and self recrimination. <laughs> it's better to just it's better to just say, Okay, I'm gonna read the fucking reviews and that's the way it's gonna be. Right, right. Well, um, you know, for what it's worth, I think you're gonna get uh, some good news. It's and, and um you know, you know I'm a fan of your work, so I'm really Thank pleased. You, uh I'm pleased for you to have this book coming out. I'm pleased that we get to feature it in the T M B book club. And I wish you the best of luck as it rolls out into the world. Have fun on tour, and uh, you know, um, don't you know, don't get uh, too heavily invested in the reviews. Read them, but then you know, let them float away. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'll I'll do the best I can. Right. Either either way, either way, six months from now, it's not going to matter that much. That's we'll right. Be, we'll be on to other things. That's yeah. right. Well, listen, man. Best of luck. It's good talking to you. All right, man. Thanks. Okay, so that was Ron Curry Jr., great guy, great writer. His book, once again, is called Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles. It's a novel due out from Viking on February 11th. That's February 11th. You can pre-order it right now. Uh, whatever the case, be sure to get your copy. It's a good one. And while you're at it, be sure to sign up for the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. So my next guest, the main event, Kate Zambrino, uh, she is the author of three books. She's written two novels, one of which is called Oh Fallen Angel, and the other one is called Green Girl. Her latest book is a critical memoir called Heroines. It is available now from Semiotext. 
I believe that's how you pronounce it. There's an E at the end of this in parentheses, semiotext. Is it called semiotexty? Semiotexty? Or is the E silent? Uh, that is a mystery to me. Regardless, it's great to have Kate here on the program. We had a really interesting conversation about a lot of things, including feminism and patriarchy and schizophrenia and sex and drugs, among other things. So uh, thanks for listening, folks. Here she is, the lovely and talented Kate Zambrino, author of the critical memoir entitled Heroines. I'm in Carville, North Carolina, which is a little hippie town next to Chapel Hill, the university town. And I'm in my office, which is extremely messy and full of boxes and library books. I lived here for a year and I still haven't really unpacked. And we had our first real snow. We had our first real snow right now. So, um, looking out at ice and snow. It snows there, for real. Like, is that like a regular occurrence? Well, no. I first moved to North Carolina two years ago. Um, there was, like, a little bit of ice at the end of December. And, like, the t- um, the news stations were like, snow, snow pop- apocalypse. I forgot what the pun is. But they were, like, freaked out by an inch of ice. So it's pretty atypical. I actually thought that my partner would get school canceled today, but it all melted. So, but no, I mean, we haven't really had a real snow since I've lived here. And you're from Ch- and you're from Chicago, so all of this like freak- I'm originally from Chicago, yeah. So all this freaking out about snow, like an inch of snow, is, probably seems silly to you, you know. I, well, it's silly, but it, there's like no infrastructure here for it, really. Like there's no like in Chicago, there's like you know the salting trucks and and I mean there's there's just no. It's just people don't know how to drive on ice at all. Yeah. So things really shut down here because people don't know how to react to it. Yeah, I grew up that way too. I mean, I grew up in uh, partially in Milwaukee, and you know, I so I, oh, yeah. I understand like you know, there's no amount of snow that would like when we got a snow day in Milwaukee, it was like the greatest thing ever. Like it had to be like ten feet of snow. I know. You know, and I lived in Ohio after Chicago, and so I've only been out of a cold weather climate for two years, and it's weird how much you forget it. Like. Okay. You forget snow. Yeah, no, I was gonna. I live in Los Angeles, so I was just gonna say. Like, oh yeah, yeah, right. You talk about people in like North Carolina not being able to react to snow, but it's like in Los Angeles, people can't drive in rain, and I'm not even kidding. Right. Like it's a complete freakout when it rains, and especially if it rains heavily, which it does every once in a while, and you know, like. Like even the streets and the sewers like aren't prepared for water, so like the streets flood more easily. It's it's just you know it's That's crazy. Um, so very excited to talk to you and, uh, you know, I've read heroines and I emailed you and I don't know if you know this, but I'm undertaking this year. And I have to say this with some degree of modesty because I'm such a slow reader. Um, and I'm, I'm busy. It's hard for me to like just plow through books as much as I wish I could. Um, but I decided that this year I was going to read nothing but feminist literature. Like as long as I, wow. Yeah. I was like, and, and. I'm trying to figure out why I decided to do that. And I think it's like I have become aware of feminist literature and of how much this means to female friends of mine and writer friends of mine um, over the years. And I think social media plays a big role in it. Um, and just mm-hmm. on- online writing, essays, references within texts that have to, you know, that deal with something else uh, explicitly. You, do you know what I'm saying? So it just started to mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of pile up in my brain and I started to feel really. Uh, ignorant and really 
uh, I just, it just confused me. Like, what is this? And what is, uh, what is happening out there? And then I became a parent to a daughter. And so I have a young daughter now. And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, how am I going to raise, uh, you know, a strong female? <laughs> so I think That's it's, cool. yeah. So it's those things that are fueling this. And I started with heroines, you know, just sort of on a whim. But oh I think, God. Well, no, a but, lot of pressure. <laughs> no, but I think it's a good book to start with for a variety of reasons, but you know, you're touching upon a lot of major figures, um, in the feminist literary uh, tradition or history or whatever. And there's just a lot of scholarship. And I, it's also a nice book uh, to start with because of the style in which it's written, you know, where it's this sort of um, these bursts. Uh, I don't know how you like the collage aspect of it. And, um, you know, the multiple, mm -hmm. voice, the multiple voices, the multiple narratives, it serves nicely as a primer. Um, but I feel like I need to like start our conversation about this stuff by like preemptively apologizing for all the stupid things I'm going to say, <laughs> you know, like, Oh no. I mean, I think that, um, I think that so much of, um, I guess sexism or any or patriarchy in general is with language. So I think that if people are just aware that sometimes they don't know, I think that, I think sometimes, um, it's that position of feeling like, you know, everything that I think that's a dangerous position. I think the position of like not knowing is a really good one. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, yeah, I think like I'm, I'm just at the very least I can profess how little I know. <laughs> like I'm not an expert on feminist theory. I mean, I'm, um, and, and, and I think the question too, that's interesting is what makes literature feminist. I think there's probably has been, and, 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 and I know there have been reviews that have kind of called upon heroines feminism. Is it really, you know, empowering? Is it really feminist? So it's an interesting question too, like what makes something feminist? Yeah. Okay. So let's like, you know, just for listeners like me, and I'm sure there are plenty of them out there who might not be engaged with this stuff or might not have read deeply, uh, in, you know, about this, this kind of stuff. Like what is feminism? I mean, it's just, it's just basically what the study of gender roles and the fight for gender equality and, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I asked myself yeah. that question and it's like, it's not the, it should be easier to answer maybe than it, it, it was for me, you know, moments ago. Well, I've taught, I taught, um, I've taught a lot of introduction to women's and gender studies. So I probably, I have like some ready-made answers to that. None that I've memorized. So I'll probably like spoil it a bit, but I like bell hooks definition that, um, that, uh, feminism is, you know, recognizing oppression and hierarchy and how that um, it's not only sexism, but recognizing that we still live in a society that uses hierarchies, that is hierarchical, um, and trying to be aware of, of hierarchies and, um, and trying to end oppression for all, all people. But I think also feminism is recognizing specific movements in history, which, I mean, unfortunately, in the West, we mostly only speak of American and British feminisms, but there's, of course, worldwide feminist movements. You know, there were huge feminist movements in the Middle East and Egypt. Um, but so, you know, feminism on one hand, one hand, historically, has been about um, laws and trying to change laws that um, dealt with you know, sort of inequality between um, the sexes, like voting rights, education rights, marriage rights, property rights, and recognizing that history. But also I think now it's about recognizing how we still 
live in a patriarchal society that often privileges the masculine over the feminine inflected in our laws and institutions and in our behavior and how we treat others. Okay. And so how big of a problem do you think, I mean, cause obviously it differs from culture to culture. It can even differ from city to city or town to town within the United States. But like, I think about, um, you know, obviously the Middle East, you know, women, Afghanistan, you know, women have it terrible there, especially comparatively speaking. Um, and in the United States, I mean, I don't know who said this. Maybe I read Camille Paglia or someone talking about how, you know. Oh, she's going to be high up on your, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, Camille Paglia is kind of, I'd say, a really reactionary thinker. Um, so, I mean, of course, there's a lot of feminist thinkers that are very, Actually, I have to go on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just like it's just like um, I, I, right now in the United States. I guess just to use this country as an example, things are better for women mm-hmm. than they've ever been in the history of the world. True or false? Like, is that is that true? It seems true to me when I think about it, but that doesn't mean things are perfect and that we don't need to still work to make things better. But things are fairly good. I mean, these these hierarchies and these patriarchies, like. I mean, I think of like, uh, you know, in the work world, like I have plenty of female friends who do quite well um, and it doesn't seem to be slowing them down, but maybe they could be going even I higher. Think that, I think that, um, I mean, I kind of always sort of um, am a little skeptical of like a view of history that's all progressive, you know, that's like, oh, you know, we've come a long way, baby, like, which is a marketing slogan. You know? I think that the the metaphor of waves of feminism is an interesting one. You know, they refer to the first wave being this period of like 70 years, which ultimately suffrage was the goal of it in in, um, America and in in Britain. And then the second wave came like 40 years later. And and I think that um, I don't know. I think we're in a complicated period in terms of feminism and equality. I think you're quite right. I think that a lot of women and men... um, in maybe more specifically in cities, um, as you said, it you know it differs in in different um, sort of subcultures. Um, you came of age with many of the benefits of feminism, of second wave feminism. You know, girls you know had um, you know played sports, you know, because of Title IX, and there are more girls in college, and I think even more women in grad school. Um, you know, and then yes, there are definitely um, women ascending the ranks at um, companies and things like that. And there is this general sense, I think, among younger generations that I think that most people, and maybe again, this is not all people in the, in the states, certainly not. Um, but I think there is this notion of you know, yeah, women and men are mostly equal, and I think that's a good thing. I think that my women's studies classes that I teach. And I teach, you know, a lot of male students as well as female students. They're like, oh, yeah, we're, we are definitely equal. And, you know, and I don't think that women are inferior to men. But I do think that there are still subtle and pernicious ways in which the hierarchies exist. Um, I think that these recent conversations about reproductive rights really shows that in some ways we're taking steps backward in our society now. Um, you know, that the, you know, Roe versus Wade is in so much danger of perhaps being overturned. You know, you know, all this talk about, you know, rape and rape, rape and illegitimate rape. I mean, I think that this notion of a woman's body 
which was such this hallmark of second wave feminism, that a woman should have the right to privacy and the right to do what she wants with her own body. I mean, I think that this is um, still being debated in 2013. And I have to say, it's a a little distressing to me. So I think, you know, there's some good things happening, but I think in some ways we're going backwards in terms of the conversation about a woman's body, a woman's sexuality. Um, in some ways, I think, you know, we're back to the culture wars of the 80s and early 90s. So fucked up. I don't know. It's like, I, yeah, because I mean, I watched the, I watched the election unfold just like anybody else. And I saw these like, you know, it's like the Republican, like, like the really extremely socially conservative wing of the Republican Party were making, or members of it were making these comments about, uh, what is it, like legitimate rape. And ac- yeah. access to contraception, which I think the I think the yeah, I like, think I think a solid majority of Americans think that that's retrograde and silly. I think you know. I think so too. But the fact is that now that there are like laws in place, you know, that there are starting to be laws in place that prohibit, you know, insurance covering contraception. I mean, this really affects and has all these issues about reproductive rights affect and has always affected you know, disproportionately poor women and women of color, you know, so there is still, you know, there's still this huge class issue within women's rights. Um, And yeah, I think that, I think that there's a lot of, you know, progressive things going on. I think there's more of an issue. There's more of a conversation about, you know, transgendered identity. I think there's more of, you know, a conversation about, um, about feminism now, but you know, I, it's, it's feminism is still considered a really ugly concept in our um, popular culture. And I still think we have the stereotype of the ugly, angry feminist. And I think as long as that remains, I still think that um, we live in a really um, biased culture. You know what? Okay. So that's a good, that's a good point. And I think it's part of the reason why I'm interested in reading feminist literature is because um as much as I can look at the country and I can look at friends of mine and say, Hey, women are doing great or they're doing better than they ever had. Yeah. I can also point to male friends of mine and even female friends of mine here and there who express, um, great hostility towards feminist complainers or the bitch. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like you definitely, I, I definitely the women complainers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's like, or they're just like, you know, they don't shave their legs or they're just, they're never satisfied or blah, 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 you know? And so there's that, and I found myself, and this is how I often feel. I just feel like a freaking alien. Like I don't feel like connected yeah. or or properly engaged maybe like, but I don't feel connected to any of it. Cause I'm so far removed from the Todd Akins of the world and the legitimate rape people. Like they, I'm just like, what, yeah. these, what kind of, what world are these people living in? Um, but I'm also not, um, I'm not like deeply engaged in analyzing the hierarchies or, I mean, I I would vote for anybody who would expand rights and I want women to have total equal footing. You know what I'm saying? Like that's where my heart is, Mm -hmm. but I'm not deeply engaged. And so there can be part of me that just feels like, well, how can anyone be participating in a hierarchical scheme to oppress women? You know, like how, how does that even happen? And I can, I, that's just lazy thinking, I guess, but I I can feel like. I think it happens. Yeah. It happens in relationships, too. It happens on the level of um, everyday behavior and conversation and dialogue. And so I think that most people 
that we know by and large think that men and women should be equal and should be afforded equal rights. I mean, there are, of course, the Todd Akins of the world, and that is very real. I mean, it's very real that, you know, I think like 50% of the country is quite, you know, quote-unquote culturally conservative. Um, but what I'm interested now is that, you know, how feminism and is still quite ambivalent and confused in everyday practice. And I still think that, you know, heterosexual relationships can be quite hierarchical as well as all relationships. And I think that, you know, language can be used that's, you know, kind of hard, highly charged, like, you know, getting upset with a woman for being bitchy, right? Or, or getting irritated by a woman for being angry or even the angry black woman, the feminist killjoy, right? All these stereotypes in our culture, I think, still point to our discomfort for a woman who goes outside of bounds. And it's not just men who feel this discomfort, it's women as well, right? And I think, you know, the internet really shows how, you know, all this is played out because these sort of power plays every day. Um, you know, the internet is a really interesting place for feminism. There's all these online spaces that are feminist and girls and women and in conversation and dialoguing. But then, you know, I think that, I think the existence of, you know, trolls on the internet or the ways that, you know, women can be punished or silenced and or disciplined on the internet for kind of going out of bounds. I think that points to, I think it points to um, that we still live in a pretty hierarchical society. So, okay, so that brings me to, to like, the writing of heroines, um, you know, the process of writing it because of the way that it um, is structured and because of the style in which it is written. You know, it seems to suggest, and I think, I mean, I've read up on you a little bit, so I know that uh, at least parts of the book were an outgrowth of online writing and blogging. You know, you had a, a, a what is it called, Francis Farmer is my sister. Is that right? Sister, so, yeah. so yeah. talk about, I mean, because first of all, like, w have you experienced pushback from um, angry men or from people who might want to counter you or silence you or who find uh, things that you might suggest in your work or on your blog offensive? And then secondly, can you talk about how like the blogging uh, influenced the writing of heroines? Like, you know, how did that process sure. work? Um. I've actually received far more pushback from women who identify as feminists in terms of the actual published book, Heroines. And because I think in Heroines, I'm not actually presenting specifically an empowered, um, totally empowered, aware, you know, um, super assertive feminist. I think I'm actually exposing the current sort of dividedness of being a, a feminist today that you can, your philosophy can be feminist, but actual lived and experience is much messier and fraught with power relationships and fraught with desires that can sometimes contradict, um, you know, the philosophies where we want to live our lives. So there were, um, I would say like, most reviews of feminism, of heroism, um, heroines in, in the mainstream has, um, by women, have either called to attention that I wasn't in, intersectional enough in the book, that I didn't bring in class or race or sexuality in the book, which I think is a good critique, even though I... Um, I don't know if a book could be everything, and, and gender was really the sort of lens that I had, but that was a big 
big critique. Um, I mean, a big critique is a big critique of feminism now, a big dialogue, and it's happening online, especially, and um, is, you know, oh, these white privileged women who are whining, right? So um, heroin's got a bit of that treatment, you know, this notion of me complaining, but, you know, I still think our, our notion that a woman takes up too much space or is complaining is still somehow bounded to sexist ideas. But so there was that critique. And then there was a critique um, in the Los Angeles Review of Books that I was like too girly, too hysterical, too consumerist um, in the book. So again, being a bad feminist, right? But I was a bad feminist, but I was a messy feminist, but I wasn't empowered enough. And, and it was written by, you know, a very smart, young female critic who seemed to think, you know, we should move past this already, right? Like we're, we should be empowered and not be, um, you know, talking about dresses or clothes. So those have been the main um, criticism. Actually, most of the men who read heroin did not have criticisms like that. I mean, I got one real, like, mansplaining review where it was like, oh, she did these citations, and I don't think she understands French feminism. I don't think she understands Michel Foucault. You know, it was just really, like, you know, telling me, you know, this is, this, this is how you, you know, you're you're a bad scholar, you're a messy girl. But you miss it. Actually, I've been really surprised how much men have liked the book. <laughs> it really surprised me. Well, Not that I didn't write it for them, but... Well, I think, like, for me, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but, like, you know, reading about the the wives of modernism and uh, or the transatlantic, you know, transatlantic experience and that whole mythology, which I've, I've always been fascinated from, but admittedly from the primary perspective, which is to say the male perspective, like the Hemingways and the Fitzgerald, the F. Scott Fitzgeralds. Right. And so then you become which is a universal perspective, right? That's like that's how you are introduced to it, in uh, from uh, an academic standpoint. Anyways, you get the books, you read the books, and then if you yeah. get, if you get hooked on into it as much as I have, like I wound up reading a lot of literary biography from that period. And oh yeah, the only yeah, and they, like you know, there's a book called Hemingway's Women, which I I don't know if you read that one, but uh, oh no, I haven't read it. You'd actually really like it. It's a it's a biography. Sadly, uh, yeah, it's a literary biography of Hemingway, but from the perspective of his four wives. Um, it actually oh, cool. it tells their story. And so that book, I don't know, that was a, that was a very fascinating book and it made me re conceive you know, of, of what I thought. And there's all sorts of interesting gender and sexuality things happening with Ernest Hemingway that, you know, we could spend an hour talking about, but, um, you know, I, I guess as a guy reacting to heroines and maybe the reason why, um, you haven't received much pushback is that it's, it was, it was eye opening for me. It's probably eye opening for women mm-hmm. too, but like, you know, I, I knew about Zelda. I, I hadn't read as much about Vivian Elliott. Um, I didn't know as much about, um, June Miller, uh, or, you know, there are a lot of names you drop in this book that I had to go to like Wikipedia and be like, who the heck is this? And like, I need to read this person. So it, it makes me anxious. And it's also, um, I don't know. It's just depressing. Like how poorly, they were treated and how threatened Scott Fitzgerald felt because his wife wanted to write a freaking book. It's just like, you know, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It's, it's instructive to me. And like, I, I'm also not hugely um, knowledgeable about uh, feminism. And so it's hard for me to push back much. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm new to right. it. So I don't come to it with all sorts of like, you know, preformed ideas. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically a, a feminism virgin. <laughs> Well, it's also the first woman's studies 
um, programs in America came about in the 70s, kind of part of that whole sort of, um, you know, civil rights movement where, you know, students fought and asked for um, minority studies in general and, and won it. And Nancy Milford's biography of Zelda came out in 1971. It's a really problematic biography, and she mostly pathologizes Zelda in really troubling ways. But that came out basically at the the dawn of the women's studies program. And so Zelda was considered like a literary Marilyn Monroe or a literary Sylvia Plath um, character for like the first generation of women's studies students who were almost predominantly female, even though that's changed now in terms of women and gender studies, you know, intersecting with queer studies um, and, and looking at masculinity studies, et cetera. But so I think a lot of women who read heroines, you know, and I think there's, there's this whole project in um, academic women's studies and academic feminism about reclaiming sort of silenced women throughout history and literature. And so I'm imagining a lot of women who read, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of women who read Heron's might have been maybe more familiar with Zelda's story and had maybe even read Zelda's, one of the biographies before, or was aware of it. I think that there's, you know, it's so interesting to me in terms of the people I've met online, the sort of feminist writers I've met online, how, how we share such a similar fascination for these sort of silenced figures. In, in these huge literary periods. So it's possible some of the criticism is because, you know, the, the girls and women who've read it are, are very, um, they're very invested in it because these are their women too, right? These are people who they also have been fascinated by and obsessed by. I've heard from many people who are like, oh, you wrote the book I was going to. Right. So I think there's there's something there's something there to that, which is great. I mean, Zelda's been written about a lot in feminist studies. Um, I, I really I'm like looking... I really like her. I, like I just like the more I know, yeah. the more I know about Zelda, the more I suspect that at her best she was really great. Yeah, I mean, Vivian Elliott is a more troubling figure because I mean, obviously she was a fascist, which you can't you can't. Uh, I mean, she was literally a British fascist, which you can't recoup. You know, there are things about. Vivian Elliott, even though I think Billy, Vivian Elliott, I think at points in her life, I would have really liked to have known her as well, um, mostly because she was kind of like the, um, the the woman in the room who you had no idea what she was going to do. Like there was like a real, uh, you know, sort of madcap aspect to her. But yeah, Zelda, I think, and I think Zelda is, I think Zelda is the fact that she was this artist through her language, through her dialogue and how little she herself wrote down. I think she's this fascinating figure. You know, she theorized herself. She theorized the flapper um, as well as Scott and helped build that mythology. And, yeah, I think she would have been a really... She was someone who was a literary character. She lived like a literary character. And I think, I think even after she stopped being the flapper, I think even then, especially then the sort of hag Zelda, I think I would have liked her even more. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, feel, I guess I feel like that. I, I sensed a, maybe the greatest amount of heartbreak reading about her, and I guess I sensed, too, that, like, she was really talented. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And, like, and like that, maybe maybe that, that that's it. I just, I wish I could read the book she would have written had she had the opportunity and not felt 
marginalized or not had to deal with like Scott's like crazy insecurity, you know, like, you know, and saving the walls is pretty good. I mean, it's really unedited, which is part of its charm. You know, it's much closer to associative writing, like surrealist writing than, you know, stuff that Fitzgerald wrote. Um, but it's really, it has some moments of just incredible beauty and um, it's really a beautiful book. And her girl portraits are actually really good too. Her, these stories she wrote for money in, you know, in the, these pulp magazines that Scott also published in. But yeah, I think she did have a lot of talent. I think she had, a, um, you know, a lot is made of like her daughter, you know, wrote in the intro to her collected um, fiction, you know, oh, she you knows she was undisciplined and she was in all different directions and she never could decide. But I think that, I think that's a big excuse to the Fitzgerald mytho- mythology. It's something that really intrigued me that why, why Zelda has to not be seen as an artist for us to appreciate Fitzgerald's great artistry. You know, it's a, it's an interesting, it's like we have a lot at stake culturally, almost communally in, you know, labeling Zelda the crazy chick who just was, you know, oh, who dabbled in everything, this, you know, brilliant dilettante, which she was, but I think she also was at times quite serious, especially later, and that was quite forwarded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's just so people who, you know, for people listening who haven't read heroines. Um, or who might not know what the context is. I mean, basically what you're doing, and I, forgive me if I'm misstating this, but um, it, the, the book is essentially an examination of the lives of the quote-unquote wives of modernism. You know, these T.S. Eliot, F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, uh, June Miller, you know, blah, 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 down the road. But um, is that right? Is that, I mean, you can probably... The Mad Wives and Mistresses. It's about, um, it really is a very subjective... Um, I, I think in some ways poetic meditation on the women who are both characters and then were real life women who were seen as characters or made into characters who have been often dismissed as the sort of mad wives and mistresses of modernism. So I look at, you know, Emma Bovary and Breton's Nadia as they were made into literary characters. I mean, Emma Bovary was much, you know, was, um, maybe inspired by some real-life sources, but was Flaubert's creation. And then Nadia, who was based on a real woman, but Breton also made into a character. Um, and then Jane Bowles, who is an extraordinary writer of her own right. Um, Vivian Elliott, T.S. Elliott's first wife, Zelda Fitzgerald, June Miller, and then, you know, lots of lots of authors. And I think one of my main questions is, what was the effect of these women um, upon being made into characters. How did that affect how they viewed themselves as as artists, as subjects, and how were they silenced and how were they kept from writing? Um, and it was it's not all a story of oh, being chained and, and, and put away and institutionalized and kept from writing. I mean, these women mostly censored themselves um, or were, but often were silenced as well by being diagnosed as mentally ill and institutionalized. And I think I traced that because I was really interested in how the myths of modernism really haunt the way we still think about literature and writing. Um, One of my central 
reasons I wrote the book. You asked about the blog, but in truth, I think that that's something maybe that I've mythologized or I have maybe mischaracterized, but I had the bulk of these ideas before I ever started the blog. I mean, I started the blog three years ago, but I started working on the, the obsessions and notes that became heroines probably eight years ago. And I was teaching in a community college in, outside of Chicago, a course called Women in Creativity, um, which was teaching basic, I guess, feminist theory and the sort of canonical texts of women's studies classes, the novels, um, to women and men and you know, boys and girls, very inter very intergenerational, very intercultural, who, you know, didn't know anything about women and gender studies. And the question I wanted to ask, and which I asked in my class, is, you know, what stifled women historically from being creative? What kept them from being authors? or And what kept them from being geniuses? Which is the question Virginia Woolf asks in A Room of One's Own. She asks, you know, why haven't there been women of genius? You know, why wasn't there a Shakespeare's sister? How would Shakespeare in his time, Shakespeare's sister in her time, how would she literally have been thwarted from being Shakespeare? And I kind of took that back up. And of that period, I think still when we think of modernism, we have this eternal notion of the geniuses of modernism. And I think I'm really interested in extending Virginia Woolf's project and looking at the material conditions the day-to-day life and what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be a wife, um, what it meant to, in the case of Breton's Nadja, be pouring on the streets, what prohibited them from being writers. Because we have this notion that, you know, Fitzgerald is a novelist, Zelda, you know, Mr. Fitzgerald is a novelist, Mrs. Fitzgerald is a novelty. And it's this giant joke that we have. But I think I'm interested in saying, no, wait, they, you know, you have to be allowed to be a genius. You have to be nourished and nurtured and given permission somehow, or at least, you know, be able to write a lot and fail a lot in order to be a genius. So I'm interested in that. And in that class, in, in my women in creativity class, I taught, you know, you said it was kind of the cortex and heroines. And that was kind of on purpose. Like I taught yellow wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman story. I taught Kate Chopin's The Awakening. I taught Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye. I taught Sylvia Plast of Belzar. I taught Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gabar's Mad Woman in the Attic, their work on Victorian women writers, and Virginia Woolf's River One's Own. So in some ways, um, at least the first part of Heroines is just a reading of these core texts in a very personal way. But I was really interested in the girls in my classrooms who I saw as still being kind of um, stopped somehow, um, lacking confidence, um, somehow silenced in their lives, somehow still losing themselves in love and um, very anxious, very depressed. And so I'm kind of extending, you know, Virginia Woolf said she read a room one's own for the young girl of her time in the 20s, who still seems so fearfully depressed. And I wanted to ask, you know, how do the ghosts of our past, and even, you know, what what we read in our curriculum, the great texts of modernism, how does that haunt our contemporary still? Yeah. Well, how does that really take up the pen? Yeah, and it's like, you know, 
that, that like haunting is a good word, you know, because I think about like some of the the quote unquote genius male writers from this period that you talk about. And the word I also another word that comes to mind is like the cannibalization. It's almost like they just cannibalize yeah. they cannibalize these women in their lives and use them to prop themselves up for whatever in, in whatever capacity, whether it was just like, you know, emotionally support me or uh, don't write, you know, so I don't feel like threatened by the competition or, you know what I'm saying? Whatever it is, but they just devoured them essentially. And then um, yes. a quote that, uh, I don't know if this is a quote from an interview you did, or if this is directly from the book, but I scribbled this down and it's a, it's a repeated, it's like a refrain in your book where you have the wives of these modernist male writers going completely mad. And, um, you know, I think you suggested it, it was the only way that they could break out of their role is that they had to sort of go batshit. Yes. And, you know, that makes sense to me. Like when you get so frustrated in your cage, eventually anyone's going to go nuts, male or female. But, you know, it's just right. it's just very interesting to see you trace that pattern. And it's very obvious. And, and historically, we do pathologize women who go batshit. We pathologize and punish women who are angry, who exhibit outsized emotions. And something I was really troubled by in the sort of um, demonology of these women um, is that we kind of look at that historical period, um, you can say, you know, from the 1900s through 1940 or 50, um, we look at that period and we kind of just hook, line, and sinker accept the way that they were diagnosed without recognizing how much um, mental illness diagnoses are bound up in their historical period. So not that these women didn't have potentially mental illness and certainly some mental health stuff going on, certainly mental struggles, but, you know, we do choose to pathologize it and it's very much easier for us, um, I think, as a culture, as a literary culture, to put Zelda and Vivian in that other sort of cage of diagnosis because... Um, we kind of, I think anything else undercuts the canonization of their spouses. And I think that I kept them just hearing from people, oh, well, Zelda was schizophrenic, Zelda was schizophrenic. And one of the, you know, in some ways, heroines is a critique of literary biography while being in some ways an alternative form of biography because there are some really good biographies. Um, that deal with um, their subjects diagnosed mental illness in really great ways, like Harmony Lee's biography of Virginia Woolf or the biography of Vivian Elliott by Carol Seymour Jones. But so many biographies of women, especially of women literary figures, diagnose them. They either accept the diagnosis of their cultural period or they also later day diagnose them. You know, and I was finding this, you know, reading these, reading Anais Means biography, reading Jean Reese's biography, and at the end they're like, oh, she was bipolar, she was borderline personality disorder, you know, or just accepting that Zelda was schizophrenic. But the thing is, is that, you know, schizophrenia was very much a catch-all diagnosis at the turn of the century for a lot of things, and was an extremely gendered diagnosis in a way it isn't now. Um, and so, you know, I really wanted to trace out how Zelda was diagnosed and why she was diagnosed, you know, feelings of inferiority towards her husband or this still this Victorian idea that she shouldn't have an ego, that she had too much ambition, that she wasn't a good wife and mother, 
her sort of re-education training and being a good woman, the sort of underneath stuff that she was um, gay, that she was a lesbian. Um, I mean, that was all bound in how she got diagnosed and kind of taken up by the system. And then once she got taken up by the system, I mean, that has just been repeated throughout history. And I still think, um, and this is, again, a part of hierarchy, I guess, you know, Flaubert and Elliot were both massive hysterics. Um, you know, Fulbert literally had, you know, seizures and fits and, you know, Elliot often went to the sanatorium, had huge nervous breakdowns. I mean, a lot of that catalyzed the gorgeous brilliance of Elliot's, you know, epic, The Wasteland. But we don't, you know, spend our whole biographies diagnosing the geniuses who had almost predominantly been a masculine category. So I was really interested in, in tracing that. Not only how in their time periods they went mad or were seen as mad, but also how we still look at them, how we still dismiss them. Well, yeah, and it's like, it seems like it seems like that the trip to the sanatorium or like the trip into Switzerland to like take a cure or whatever they used to do back in those days, like that sort of stuff when it's attached to a male writer of renown is almost like a it's like a mark of like eccentricity or something but if it's a yes. if it's a or torture right and it's like it's just a torture genius and like he had to work through this in order to produce his masterpiece but when it's a woman who's in a sanatorium she's just like a crazy bitch right i mean you know what right. i'm saying like and that, there's so yeah and you use the cannibalization idea like there's so much this idea that these women were succubuses that they just deprived their husbands of their genius, right? That they exhausted them. You know, Fitzgerald traveling all over to try to find a good hospital for Zelda or Elliot, you know, writing in letters about his invalid dependent wife. But not only do I think that was to some degree some theatricalization on their part and wanting to seem the victim, um, but I think that it's a lot more complex. You know, Zelda and Vivian nursed and caretake you know, were caretakers for their husbands as well, who often had, you know, severe breakdowns. Um, and it was it was really tough to be a woman um, and to go out of bounds at all in that time period, you know. And I trace Vivian Elliott and Jane Bowles, the wife of Paul Bowles, who is an, an amazing writer in her own right, although much more limited um, output, which is something I analyzed in the book, um, they were diagnosed with moral insanity, as was Virginia Woolf, when they were, like, young girls. You know, and moral insanity at the turn of the century was so bound up in um, gender roles and this idea of, you know, if you had a heavy period, if you were seen as promiscuous or if your body was developing too early, you were diagnosed with moral insanity, you know, and that stuck with you. If you were, yeah. especially if you were a woman, and it's like we don't have that, I was reading individual biographies and some that contextualized it, like Carol Seymour Jones's, you know, excellent biography of um, Vivian Elliott or Harmonia Lee's of Virginia Woolf. We have some biographies that said, you know, actually the doctors at this time were really incompetent and, you know, made them, you know, drink animal serum or do, you know, terrible wasting cures that did nothing and made them worse or, you know, gave them, um, medicines that turned out to cause the hallucinations. I was reading this individually, but I wasn't reading any study that was like, okay, but we view these women still as crazy 
has it, and the crazy woman is like the muse of literary modernism. You know, from Emma Bovary to Bertrand Nadia to, you know, Nicole in Tender is the Night, the crazy woman was the inspiration of these male-driven texts. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean that we both fetishize and dismiss the crazy woman in this period? And how does that still you know, in, in fact us. Well, and how, and, and how we accept like these, these clearly wacky and since disproven medical diagnoses and somehow just let it slide. Like there's not a profession and like, listen, there's a lot of great doctors out there and I don't mean to dismiss across the board medicine, but I get frustrated with medicine um, because it's this, right. this profession that just sort of carries with it. Like once you have your MD, it's like a, it's like an automatic, uh, you know, level of esteem that you achieve within the culture um, you know, when you're a doctor, you know, and suddenly you like, you know, you know more than anybody else. And, you know, when I go into these, uh, situations as a patient myself, you know, just going in for a physical, you know, there's an aspect to it that makes me feel like I'm at an auto mechanic. And unless, yeah. you, unless you know about the innards of your car and you're one of those, um, people who can like fix a car, which I, I am so not, then you just sort of have to take them at face value when they say, oh, you know, the hydraulic such and such isn't working or do you know what I'm saying? And then I, I find myself going it's very alienating. Yeah. And it's like, did they just take me for a ride? And like, you know, the, the other thing too, is that like, they're trying to make money, you know? So like they'll do this procedure, yeah. they'll make you think this or that. And I just don't think it gets examined enough. I'm not saying that like they're all corrupt, but it's just, this, right. you know, you just sort of take it at face value. Oh, they're crazy. Oh, they're schizophrenic. And it's like, well, wait a minute, let's unpack this. Those doctors were actually yeah. completely wrong and were part of the problem, you know? And their diagnoses were so bound up in cultural attitudes Right. You know, of the time. And yeah, and especially for, you know, in terms of going to the doctor, you know, for, for women historically, it's often been a very um, you know, dismissive experience. You know, oh, don't worry, you're, or are you anxious? Don't worry your little head over it. You know, that's why two of the, I think, the great texts of feminist literature in, in the modernist period were Charlotte Perkins Gilman's Yale Wallpaper and Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, which both satirize medicine, which satirize the sort of medicine men and their all-knowing authority. Well, emphasis um, emphasis on men. That's the thing, too, is that the, the, right. do the doctors during that period were not female. <laughs> you know, No, I mean, they were slowly, like Virginia Woolf had a female doctor, um, a mining doctor later on. But yeah, but yeah, mostly not. And even the whole idea of, you know, one of the things I kind of... I think subtly take on in heroines of psychoanalysis as well as, you know, the earlier mind doctors who weren't even psychoanalysts, um, who weren't even following Freud, their ideas of the talking cure. Um, but, you know, I kind of mirror um, modernism with, with psychoanalysis. I mean, this is very explicit in Tender is the Night where the male her hero is actually an analyst. But this idea that the the woman confesses and the man is the authority figure and he writes it down and he, he makes it the authoritative narrative. I mean, I see that movement in a lot of modernism, most specifically in, in Fitzgerald where Fitzgerald did in a way use Zelda, used her language, used her diaries, used her letters, um, used her, but then he kind of packed her into this sort of master narrative. Um, I, I love Fitzgerald's novels. I love basically all the um, male modernists I write about in terms of their literature. It was all some of my favorite books when I was 
in college afterwards, but I still think that that movement of the sort of colonizing of the mad woman in the text and then the punishing of her in real life, I found that to be really troubling. Yeah. Well, and it's like, it's, it's not, I mean, I fi- I guess I find this is the truth with any literature, but especially like when you get really invested in a, in a movement or a period or a group of writers and you read their work and then the natural progression often is to read the fiction and to be totally enamored of the fiction and then to move into like mm-hmm. the, the literary biography and to, you know, to start to suss out the real lives behind these stories. Like that, that's how I operate anyway, whenever like mm-hmm. a, a writer really gets their hooks into me and there's just so much more than meets the eye. And, and frankly, like a lot of times the, the biography and the more than meets the eye stuff is ultimately more fascinating to me than the fiction, or at least it, it winds up superseding it eventually, you know? And we have this notion in our culture still with Eliot, you know, Eliot's new criticism, you know, the contributions he made to new criticism were kind of like an apologia for his work and to say, don't look at my biography. Don't look at my life when analyzing my text. And that still had, you know, the still is how, you know, people are taught to read now, right? The life is not important. And I think for, for me, a feminist move is to say, actually, the material lives are yeah. important. Yeah. That's why I do this show. I think I'm much more. It's like I'm always like, okay, you wrote the book. Yeah. Now, who the hell are you? You know, like, <laughs> like I, you know, that's how I feel. I mean, that's really what's interesting to me, uh, or that, that's largely what's interesting to me. Um, and so, I guess here's a natural question that's been bothering me: is that in your research, um, you know, as you were reading up on all of these people, did you ever come across? And forgive me if I'm forgetting something from the book, but like, did you ever come across a male figure from the transit, you know, transatlantic modernist movement or era who uh, bucked the trend? Were there any male heroes, you know, during this period? Like, was John Dos Passos unusually sensitive? Like, please tell me, like, there was somebody who. Oh, Dos Passos was such an ass. (laughs) (laughs) He was actually one of the ones who, like, afterwards, in terms of the Zelda legend who afterwards is like, oh, she was insane, uh, while, you know, like, kind of collaborated. But, you know, I don't think that, I mean, were there sensitive uh, um, men in modern, I mean, of course. I mean, of course there were, um, uh, who who is it, the husband and wife couple that ran the, um, was it Transitions? Um, they were, do Jean and Marie Jolas? I mean, I don't know who they were in, um real life, but um, they seem to have a pretty egalitarian relationship, or Gerald... Gerald and Sarah Murphy, or whatever? Yeah, Gerald and Sarah Murphy, yeah, them as well, you know, who Fitzgerald, you know, partially based them on their lives in Tender as a Night, they seem to have a pretty... I mean, he comes across as very sympathetic in the Fitzgerald legend. I mean, yeah, I think that there is... I think that... um, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of patriarchs in modernism. There's a lot of, um, you know, men who were, you know, sensitive, brilliant geniuses in their lives, I mean, in their writing, but who were also kind of the patriarchs in their individual existences. Yeah, I'm sure there's exceptions. I mean, I don't know their... I I would imagine maybe some, like, queer figures from modernism... Um, yeah, like that's what I want to know. Like, I want to know who Zelda Fitzgerald's like gay male friends were in Paris. Like, she had to have had like some male buddy or, or you know hetero, whatever the case may be, but somebody who was like sympathetic. Don't they say that Gerald Murphy was gay? You know, who was super sympathetic to all the women of that period was Tennessee Williams. 
you know, and Tennessee Williams in his later period wrote a very bad play. It was his like bad pulpy period. He wrote a really bad play that was about the Fitzgerald called Clothes for a Summer Hotel. Um, that was about Zelda Scott, where he's really empathetic with both of them. And Tennessee Williams was just loved Jane Bowles. He thought she was a genius. And probably one of my favorite anecdotes from Jane Bowles' biography is that when Tennessee Williams found out that Jane Bowles died in basically anonymity and that she didn't get an obituary in the paper, he like burst out into tears and ran to the, uh, I think it was the Times, ran to the office and demanded that they print an obituary. I've always found Tennessee Williams an extremely um, sympathetic and empathetic figure and something I analyze, I mean, not in a scholarly way, but in a very deeply subjective way is, you know, I say, what's the difference between um, Tennessee Williams taking these women on his characters and even how Annie Mean and Henry Miller took on June Miller as their character and kind of co-opted June Miller. And I think Tennessee Williams really loved the women he wrote about, you know, everyone from his sister Rose to Zelda. Um, and you could, and some have argued it's all about, you know, his sister Rose, who had a lobotomy, and his deep empathy towards her, who he just wrote about again and again in his plays. But I talk about, you know, like loving the real-life woman as, 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 and then making her a character as in some form of empathy, which I definitely think that Tennessee Williams did. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lots. I don't know. It was, uh, I want to write. That'll, that'll, be my, that'll be my book. I'll, I'll write the book about like the nice hetero male from like the 1920s, like the one guy. <laughs> you know, I'd be interested to find like somebody out there. Like I, it, I don't know. It'd probably be almost impossible to uncover it, but it would just be interesting to know that there were at least some people who had an enlightened view. Like it's depressing to me as a hetero white male, especially, you know, because like I fall into what I feel like is every evil category almost. Um, and that's not across the board evil, but it's just those patterns in history and the way that the misbehavior and the power and like, it's hard not to attribute it to, you know, my particular combination of, you know, gender and ethnicity. And I, you know, I don't know. It's a well, little, it's a little I think depressing. Paul Bowles was very supportive of Jane Bowles. You know, I think Paul Bowles was, um, uh, you know, in some ways he was a little like small P patriarch, but I mean, so was the, I mean, that was the husband wife relationship, you know, in that time period. I don't think that, you know, in the, that, that sort of power relationship, I don't think really anyone escaped in that time period, but Paul Bowles is, you know, he edited Jane, he believed in her genius, you know, Leonard Wolf, you know, for all of his, you know, problematicness in terms of kind of how he kind of colonized and co-opted. Virginia, he believed in her writing. He believed in her being a genius. So there's definitely models in modernism of, uh, or John Milton Murray for Catherine Mansfield, of the men in a coupledom believing strongly in the woman's genius. And I think Bloomsbury was a pretty um, egalitarian group. I think that there was a lot more equality with men and women in, in Bloomsbury. Um, you know, Jean Reese's husband, like her husband, Max, was her, her agent and tireless supporter. And, you know, was they were in extreme poverty. And and I, I think Jean Reese's husband, not the first one, he was 
you know, a petty thief and I don't, I, not a great husband. I think Jean Reese was a way worse spouse than her husbands were. So I think, I think you do see models and I don't think it's all, I mean, I, I don't think my thesis was ever that the men were evil in modernism. I think they were just products of the era and products of a concept of genius, which was exclusively masculine and kind of gave them absolute permission to act, you know, unethically. But they were just products of their, I think they were just products of their culture. Mm. And so speaking of products of culture, like what about like the argument? And I hear this sometimes and I, I find myself nodding to a degree, um, but I'd be interested to hear your take on it. Like what about the argument that we are now living in a hyper-feminized culture in America where, you know, you hear guys, like especially like the straight dudes bitching about, um, you know, how they can't be guys, how they have to be more sensitive. The guys are doing yoga. They're metrosexual. And I've even heard women complain about this. Like they're just not men anymore. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do, where do you fall on that continuum? Do you think that's a bullshit argument or do you think there's truth in it? Like, well, what does it mean to be a man? I mean, I guess that's the, um, I think a lot of these notions from the metrosexual to the, you know, being a guy, having a man's den, I think those are mostly, you know, concepts of the self that are stereotypes that are created by the media. You know, we live these stereotypes, right? We kind of live based on these images we're told that we're supposed to be. I think that any notion of any pressures of how you're supposed to be based on being a man and a woman are oppressive if you don't fit inside the that category. Um, I think you're referring to like a man's movement thing, right? Yeah. Being men. Yeah. yeah. Were, I mean, what does it mean to be a man? There's all sorts of ways to be a man in society. I mean, does being a man mean that you have a penis? You know, does being a man mean that you're um, – that you're necessarily good at sports. You know, I think that, I mean, this might be a very cynical view, but I, I do think that, you know, a lot of ourselves, even outside of gender, are often, you know, constructed by these social ideals um, and, and these representations of the good life, you know, which... I think the whole couple form, the idea of the couple, the his and hers, the manly man and the womanly woman, I think that's constructed. I think we're kind of outside of it. I think we're kind of given these roles. And I think, you know, an idea behind gender studies or feminism is that these, you know, any way that we're supposed to perform based on what our biological sex is, is kind of oppressive. I mean, in different time periods, it's been more oppressive. And I, I think it's actually pretty hard to be a boy in society now. I think that girls are given a lot of problems. Girls have a lot of have a lot of baggage, especially in terms of how their bodies are supposed to be or how they're disciplined for behavior that's seen as not normative. But I think being a boy is hard now. I think that um boys who are seen as feminine are often punished. Um and I think it's, I think it'd be really hard, you know, raising a feminist son now. I think that'd be really complicated and really, really important. Um, I don't think there's any pressures for men to be metrosexual now. <laughs> I mean, no one's, there's, we live in a society that very much privileges the masculine and masculine behavior. I mean, that's just my own opinion. 
Um, I don't think there's really almost any pressure on men to groom themselves. It's nowhere close to the pressure of women to groom themselves. I mean, when I taught women's studies more regularly, I would show, you know, that painting by Courbet, the, the origins of the world, that's just like the big bush shot, that painting. I don't know. You know I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, but I'm going to Google it right now since you said big bush shot. <laughs> it is. It's a huge bush shot. It's, and it's really kind of this Courbet, C-O-U-R-B-T. It's, you know, this. Um, uh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, I, I see it. 19th century French painting. And I would show this to my students, you know, and my students would be like, oh my God, she needs to shave. You know, <laughs> like they were so horrified by the unkempt. Um, it was like this really like visceral horror that Freud would have had a field day about, you know, just by this, you know, image. and I think all these ideas of propriety, how a girl should behave, how a girl should groom herself. You know, I always tell my students, and this is girls and boys who have this reaction, maybe mm. more girls. You know, I always tell my students that the difference between biological sex and gender is that, you know, in 2013 in American mainstream society, whatever that is, it is biologically female for a woman to grow hair on her legs and it's, you know, feminine for her to shave it off. You know, my students always get grossed out, even with the discussion of shaving legs, like super rude about it. And they don't think in terms of the whole metrosexual, you know, being, there is, you know, um, I think there is this, you know, idea that we should, that comes out of feminism, that we shouldn't have to always act out these stereotypical roles, and that boys should not be punished for being sensitive. But I don't think there's nearly... I mean, the amount of pressure that feminine boys get or which I think is the biggest, largest pressure or masculine, you know, girls who are not seen as feminine get is like so much outsized and so much larger than, than a man being encouraged to be sensitive. The thing is, it's like, why is sensitivity should not be a feminine trait? I mean, it should be a human trait. Yeah, and I think like, but I, you know, and I think like sensitivity it can mean a lot of different things in a cultural context. Like, I think sensitivity generally, in its most, I, I don't know, essential definition is is important regardless of gender. You know, which I think is what you're saying. But I think there's also like, I don't know, there seems to be like a cultural value placed on sensitivity over truth sometimes, which I think is another way of talking about. Oh, like niceness. Yeah, yeah. niceness, political correctness, and it's like instead of saying things that might have you know hurt somebody's feelings, you you basically dance around it. Like I can, I can understand that to a degree, but I you know I agree with you. Like I don't think that you know just because somebody's sensitive, which I think any hetero male writer or somebody who's writerly in particular, you know, you're artistic in particular, you're going to be sensitive. So you know, I've never fallen into the traditional like alpha male gender role like you know i like sports and to a degree but not like you know let me put it to you this way i i've always um found like the numerical like one through ten um sexuality um the scale the, the scale yeah it was is there like an actual name for it but you know when you say yeah like, it's alfred kinsey yeah yeah okay that's right alfred kinsey so like if you're a 10 you're super super gay and if you're a one you're super super hetero like that makes sense mm -hmm. to me, and I think like guys who are art artistically inclined, um, regardless of whether or not you know which way they ultimately swing. But I mean, I guess for hetero guys, you're you're mostly four, you know fours. You know, we're more towards but the you middle. Know, 
but hetero guys can be really feminine and gay guys can be super butch. So I think that our, we have this conflation in our society that sexuality and gender are correlated. You know, even at the turn of the century, like the word for a homosexual male was an invert, that he was somehow invert of his masculinity. But I think that that's also this sort of stereotype in our society that, you know, we mostly are given only images of like the super flaming, you know, gay male when actually, you know, there can be really butch gay guys and, right. you know, really feminine hetero males. I think that, I think it's all about, you know, even, I think this, this, this notion of, absolute difference in our society. I mean, I think it's a feminist perspective to see these as partially and overwhelmingly constructed and that our secondary sex characteristics don't define us. Um, I mean, there are differences, certainly, but I think that, um, you know, a lot of it is socialization as well. Um, But, like, I think that might be a little different than this notion of political correctness or, or sensitivity. Um, yeah, sorry, I just got a lecture there. I was I was wrapped. I was just sitting here receiving the information. Um, I mean, I think that that's what ideology is: is that we take something to be always natural. It was John Stuart Mill, you know, who is one of the first, you know, um, you know, feminists in the West. You know, there's, you know who's a male writer, and he said, you know, things that we take to be normal, we take to be natural, but that's not true. We take something to be normal, but that does not mean it's natural. You know, that there's this, and I think that part of looking at feminism is looking at these historical ideas that have existed forever um, about the natural and supernatural or biological and theological differences between the sexes, which still, of course, exist now, um, a lot of media is based on biological stereotypes. Um, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or like certainly religions have a lot to play in um, still creating this idea that women should be one way, men should be another. Um, but I think we still we still have this historical past um, in terms of these. Like I think it's these differences we're talking about. You know how men are one way and women are another. I think that's where we still are dealing with hierarchies. And how how do we view the feminine in our culture as somehow inferior? And not we, like, it was Alan Johnson, who's a sociologist, who wrote, you know, it's a text I teach, that, you know, patriarchy is not you. Patriarchy is not me. It's, it's, a, it's a we, and we all participate in it. Yeah. It's not about male hating. It's not, like, we don't live in a, it's not like a male-dominated society or men do this. It's really about still these cultural ideas and these cultural hierarchies that position, you know, in some ways the masculine is the universal or the superior in our culture, the traits of masculinity um, as being somehow dominant. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like, that's the thing. Okay. And so this may be, this is a good full circle moment because it, it, that speaks to why I think I'm fascinated by this and why I feel the need to read it in addition to like the parenthood thing, which I think is critical, but it's that, you know, it's not that these things are super explicit. You don't see people on TV like woman bashing. You don't see men talking about how like they should be in charge. You know, you don't see that, but there's a lot of deeply ingrained cultural ideas and ways of operation and, you know, all that kind of stuff functions below the surface. And so for me, 
to read a, uh, books along this line and to try to investigate it. Like I is, you know, I think what I'm trying to do is figure out like, where do I fall in all of this? And like, how are these, yeah. how are these deeply ingrained ideas possibly functioning in my own brain? You know, I would prefer. And how does our language, how does our language, how, how do we enact on, uh, sexism and racism in our language every day and how our language is, you know, in our rhetoric is so much, part of these unconscious ideas, these ideas in the cultural unconscious, which we've all internalized and what we take to be instinctual in terms of our uh, distaste towards how someone behaves, you know, how that might not be natural, it's cultural, but it's so much part of our myths, our fairy tales, our, you know, everything we've been told about, um, you know, about difference and, you know, like, you know, this is just like, you know, Women's Studies 101, like how many derogatory terms there are for women and w- what character traits these are based on. You know, like a bitch or a slut and how there's not, you know, masculine alternatives for these really. And what does that say? And it's my female students, way more than my male students, who will call someone slutty or bitchy. You know, what does that say about how we kind of still discipline girls and women. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I never thought about that, but I'm sure if you like made a list, it's tilted. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Um, I, do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Because I, we haven't even talked about really you yet. And I usually do that with people (laughs) who guess on the show, but, um, I'm, so you're from Chicago. Yes. I'm from the Chicago suburbs. Okay. And so, uh, okay. So I want to, I want to talk about, um, your biography and I want to, I want it to somehow lead to how you became interested in this stuff, like how you became a feminist or, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, so what were you like as a child and were there any experiences that you can look back on in your youth that might have um, been pivotal or that you can now see as, as having been pivotal in sending you on this trajectory? Um, I was a very depressed child. I was a very like strange child. I was the middle child of a sister who is a year older and a brother who is a year younger in the sort of lower middle class, very Catholic, white ethnic enclave of Northwest Chicago. And I was, um, I had a very deeply, like, conformist childhood in many ways, especially the Catholic school. Um, and I was very, um, I was kind of a sickly child, and I think I was very disobedient a lot of the times. I kind of didn't get things. Like, I just didn't, I was like one of those kids who, like, just didn't get it. <laughs> you know, like, I never really, I was much smaller. My, you know, my siblings and I were, like, the runts of the litter. Um I was very, um, uh, I never thought I was smart. I didn't think I was smart until I went to college because, you know, what was considered intelligent was like being really good at science or being really good at math. And I got really good grades and I was expected to be really good and really perfectionist, but I never really thought that I was particularly intelligent. Um, what and then you, I think what what did what, your parents do? Like what were your parents' roles and like were they encouraging? I mean it sounds like they were at, like at least encouraging you to ex- succeed academically. I was like 
um, I had an extremely, I love my parents. My parents were, you know, very, you know, complicated people, but they were very into academic excellence. I mean, the only time I needed to be on in eighth grade, I got grounded for like three months because I needed to be on as opposed to A on So yeah. it was kind of, yeah, it was like I wasn't allowed to date like at all. You know, I, I dated, I was allowed to date when I was like 17, but like I was also like on the cheerleading squad. You know, my sister was a cheerleader and so I was expected to be and my whole childhood, I never really rebelled. Like, I rebelled inwardly by, I guess, being strange, being kind of withdrawn. I was very anxious. I was, you know, I had, like, a school-mandated therapy from a very young age because I was, like, the weird girl who cried in her desk. Um, Did you go to Catholic but, yeah, school? Yeah, Catholic school, nuns who hit you. Um, well, they weren't allowed to at a certain time. But, yeah, nuns were extremely strict. So I think I had a lot of pressures. And I think from, I think if you can pinpoint how I became who I am today, I think that I came from a deeply conformist childhood where I just didn't conform no matter how much I wanted to. I was, I always felt very alienated and very depressed. You know, they talk about the depressed child, you know, like, um, I was not seen as particularly special except that I was, you know, I had a temper, I was angry, I was you know, I cried a lot. I loved literature. I read very voraciously. Um, it was like the only thing my parents didn't censor was my reading material. You know, like I read, read like Wuthering Heights when I was like 10. Um, and so I think I got to college. Where, where did you go to college? I went to Northwestern. I'm just, <laughs> my class was a little embarrassing. Like I have like a very Northwestern family. And it was basically the only university I was kind of allowed to go to. It's like my family is like the family that everyone in it, except for me, goes to like Northwestern football games and like wears purple <laughs> and like has like like real big sports. Like my family is so into sports and I'm just not. Well, I was going like, to say earlier father, when, you, when you said you were a cheerleader, yeah. I almost started like dying. I mean, just the, uh, the vision, trying to visualize you. People like, get really, yeah. <laughs> I have to, it's really weird because like I was a cheerleader on a very competitive cheerleading squad and I don't know how I made it except that my sister was very good and very popular, but I was extraordinarily unpopular. Like I sat in the bathroom when I was a freshman in high school and ate in the bathroom because like I had no friends and no one liked me. Oh. Like I was always just someone who was like kind of a part and it was hard being a cheerleader because like the cheerleaders like were just horrid to me. Like we're talking mean girls. Like, yeah. just, and I think there was a lot of class stuff going on that I didn't understand until I just only started to understand a couple of years ago, ago that like the popular girls, like, were from the posher suburbs and like shopped at J. Crew and like my mom bought clothes at Walmart, you know, like that sort of thing. Like Ugh. I didn't understand, you know, like like what was wrong with me? What was so threatening? What is, it's probably that, probably better that you didn't understand it. I mean, you know, like the, yeah. Ugh. I, I finally like made friends with like all the geeks and nerds who were like my people, you know, and like I I think that you know like the people who are like we're all like in like tech and like theater geeks. And, and so I finally, you know, really 
think I've always just found a community of people who have been kind of, I guess, unpopular or not are not being socially at ease, um, more nonconformist. You know, like I had a, if you know, I was friends with like the, the queer kids in school who were pushed into locker by the football players. You know, who like read Sylvia Plath. It took me a while. I think I was like very conformist, although obviously different and quite bullied throughout junior high and high school. Um, and I think part of my writing, my novels, and I guess my nonfiction is kind trying to come to terms with a deeply conformist upbringing and trying to come to terms with the sense of apartness. Um, I mean, I meet young girls now who are so smart young women who are so, and young men who are so smart and they're like 16 years old or 17 years old and reading stuff, you know, that's outside of the curriculum and questioning and like into punk music or into like interesting music. I I was just, I was like basically like caged up through most of my childhood and adolescence. I was not cool. Did you go crazy? Like, did you go to college and just go back? I mean, did you party? Did you do drugs? Completely. I did every drug there was. Yeah. Every drug there was. I had sex with anything I could. Male I just or, went male really, or female? really wild. Oh yeah. yeah. Although I was never I was never very good at lesbianism. I think that I like I wasn't like I never learned it. <laughs> I never I never it was never something I was I was trying to explain this to like that queer friend of mine the other day I was like I feel like I'm bad I would be bad a bad lesbian like I'm not opposed to it like I find women as attractive as men but like I'm not like I don't I'm not technically proficient in having <laughs> sex with women which is what well, I neither, like, neither, never really neither am I so you know right right I was very passive I've always been very passive in terms of my uh well but um yeah I, I'm not really I mean, women like more like women like uh like fucking around with like my best friends who were girls. That was mostly it. But I went totally wild. Like totally tawdry girls gone wild in college. Um and I think part of my writing is also making sense of like what a fuck up I was and how sort of unformed I was. Yeah. I look and back I look back I got- on my college years and it's like there's such regret over not taking my education more seriously. It'd be, I know. How, I, I just know. I went wild and I was reacting. I mean, I'm, I'm was raised Catholic too. I didn't go to Catholic school, but like, I, I think that all that all those conformist thoughts that you were, you were talking about, you know, that that totally seems relevant to my own experience. And then you get out of that, and you almost go you go through this reactionary period where you nonconform in whatever way you do, you know, and um, you just I was just yeah, basically an I did idiot. so many drugs. And I, was, I did so many drugs, and I didn't go to my classes, and I guess I was intelligent enough as a student. Like, I was someone who knew how to be a good student, right. that right. I, like, passed my classes, you know, that I got through them without going to them. Right. You know, and my parents paid for an amazing education, and I, I, I mean, if I was going to do, like, I would do anything to do undergrad over again. I would love to just be a professional undergraduate and take you know, everything and right. learn ancient Greek and learn all the languages. Right. But, yeah, I was just... <laughs> I was just, you know, I was never given any, I never had an allowance growing up. I was extremely repressed and I really went, I really went wild. So was and there, while taking, 
was there a back like we did did it ever I mean was there a backlash point or did you like you know did you hit a, like any walls along the way Oh yeah I mean I remember I was like uh, I was a journalism student even though I didn't want to be a journalism student you know I wanted to study literature at Sarah Lawrence which was this institution I had heard about which I thought was vaguely on the east coast and was probably a liberal arts college you know, but my parents were like, you have to go to school in this very small circumference of the Midwest. Um, but, you know, so I was a journalism student, and I, I don't know if you know anything about Northwestern's journalism program. It's like extremely type A. It's, extremely, you know, the, the phrase for people who went there were Medildos. You know, it was like extremely competitive and type A. And I was just like a gigantic, it was a gigantic fuck up. You know, I was like... <laughs> I have no idea how I got through those classes. Like, we had to, like, write obituaries, you know, in newspaper journalism class. It was just, it was really, yeah, I just really went off the grid. And, you know, what happened for me is what I think happens to a lot of young people, and especially young women, who are often trained more to be help seekers, is that, you know, I had a total breakdown my senior year, and I was doing a lot of drugs. And I was having a lot of sex, and I was very unmoored. I was very unstable, and I had no structure. I was probably eating like shit. You know, like all like all the things I look back at now, and I'm like, wait, you could have been really more structured, and you know, all these things. And you know, I was you know diagnosed at the time as schizophrenic. A reviewer made a lot of this. You know, I was diagnosed <laughs> with bipolar three, which is a diagnosis which is usually based on someone's extreme reaction to an antidepressant. So, like, the antidepressant makes you crazy, so you're this diagnosis. But I was also on just, like, tons of drugs. I moved home, worked at a steak and shake. Oh, wow, yeah, that's totally, my mom, totally Midwest. My mom wanted me to work, of course. So I worked at a steak and shake, wore the paper uniform, you know, lived at home after college moved to the city, moved to Chicago, and slowly, you know, began to sort of philosophize, I guess, my changing consciousness. You know, I had taken feminist and post-colonial, well, no, not post-colonial, I had taken some feminist theory in college, and it was, even though I wasn't allowed many electives because I was a journalism student, we were, you know, supposed to be taking this, you know, we weren't supposed to really major in anything else besides journalism. I had taken several feminist studies courses and I was really fascinated by them. And something I'm really interested in now is how you can like read feminist theory, but that's not necessarily how you live your life. You can be a depressed, you know, fucked up girl while still loving, you know, Audre Lorde and, you know, Judith Butler, you know, that you can live that ambivalent state. You can be divided that, Sometimes I think a conversation about feminism now isn't only about empowerment, you know, that that we we have a complexity now of people having sort of divided and contradictory existences that can contradict this narrative of empowerment. In some ways, I was maybe empowered, but in other ways, I, I wasn't. I still had pretty poisonous ideas of romance, of love, like the men, I, the boys I fell, fell in love with just destroyed me. You know, I would get so, so destroyed. And um, I think I'm always kind of writing back to that period and trying to make sense of myself. 
Well, you know, and now like I'm, I'm, but like my the wheels of my brain are turning, and like tell me if this, if this is accurate. But you know, the conformity stuff and the work that you do now, you know, where you, and I think this is the way that a lot of a lot of writers spend their whole lives trying to unpack their youth or trying to unpack some particularly yeah. hot period of their life or some something about the core of themselves. And so when you talk about being raised in a really repressive environment. And you had very strict parents, uh, and you were at Catholic school. And like, what is more patriarchal, um, or is it patriarchal or patriarchal, whatever? Yeah, I think archal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what is what has a more patriarchal, um, you know, uh, structure than the Catholic Church? You know, like right. Um, you know that that's it. That's that's a talk about a man dominated world. Um, so, yeah. you know, and where the women are disciplinarians as well. Yeah. And it's like, you know, so when you look back on it, um, was there, a, is there a galvanizing moment you can point to? Like, was it the breakdown? Like, and you look back and you say, that was the moment when I really started to seriously investigate this stuff and to try to unpack it. Or was it a more gradual and slippery process? You can't. Like- oh, it was absolutely the breakdown. It was totally like out of Sylvia Plaza Belgar and which was a book I loved. And so I was very intertextual. I was like very self-consciously, living a Sylvia Plath period is I got a pretty prestigious magazine internship to Time Magazine when I was a senior. We all had to do internships. That was part of the journalism school. And so I went to New York. I was a senior in college. I was alone for the first time in my life. I you know, lived in a woman's dorm. that was like a woman's house called the Webster. And I sat and worked, wrote for the first time in my life. I'd always wanted to be a writer. All of my, you know, pressures, self-pressures and anxieties was bound around this idea that I couldn't finish my diaries. I couldn't write. I couldn't, I couldn't be a writer. I didn't know how to be a writer. Um, you know, I felt like I was a character, as I say in heroines. I worked on this incomprehensible play about madness in the Webster dorms at night while walking around the village on the weekend and going to this internship where I didn't really do anything and I used the printer and the computer to work on this incomprehensible play <laughs> that was hugely long and uh but but thematically consistent with your later work you know right the, the origins <laughs> it was called castles in the air which is just the worst <laughs> title ever but it was like freud said you know that uh, neurotics build their castles in the sky, psychotics go up and live in them. That was what the play was based on. It was like Alice in Wonderland. It was really bad. But yeah, and then I wrote, and then I was alone, and I think I couldn't deal with being alone. I couldn't deal with being a sovereign person. It was too scary. And then I returned back to Northwestern, and it seems like a small thing, but like no one missed me. No one noticed really I was gone. I was living alone in this like studio that I was, um, what's the word for it? I was like sub subletting with all this furniture that wasn't mine. I ordered a water bed from the Chicago reader for like $500. I didn't even have that. I paid down a credit card, you know, did massive credit card debts. Couldn't get the water bed out of the apartment. So I borrowed an ax and hacked it to pieces. Um, I actually think it was an actually really good period of my life. I think I was actually like agitating and working through something, but then I got scared and I called for help. 
So yeah, what, I mean, I what did what did the breakdown itself look like? You just like you went to get like medical treatment, or did you like you know what I'm saying? Like, the, what did it look like? It's really embarrassing because it totally has to do with a boy. Like there was this like sadistic line cook. I actually my first novel, Fallen Angel, kind of circles around it in a very self-deprecating way. Who I was just like madly in love with. I mean, I was in love with him. He was a sadist. He had a girlfriend. He would like sometimes let me like you know he would sometimes let me like come over and he would fuck me or I would like give him a blow job behind the cooler at work. It was super abject, like super S and M where I was like not a willing participant and I was just madly in love with him. I was just in love with him and he did not love me. And I started being, and then it was my senior year and I had no idea I was supposed to apply for jobs. I had no idea. Yeah, isn't, it, isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how like your college preparatory, your college teachers, and the programs that you're in, you know, these these esteemed universities, never actually give you any practical advice on like how to get a fucking job when you're out of school. Well, and all of like my, you know, fellow journalism students were like working for like got jobs at feeder papers for the Times and things like that. And I was like, my mom was like, you need to like, you should totally like, I'll buy you a suit and you can interview for Anderson Consulting, which is right. I was like. I was going through this really agitating period where I was like, maybe a cliche period, but I was reading existential literature. I was reading like Dostoevsky and like learning about experimental theater and Artaud. And I was really like having my undergraduate experience for the first time. You know, I was like, okay, now I'm ready to like be a comparative literature student. And I was kind of, you know, working too much and exhausted and, doing a, a lot of drugs. I mean, like what, I are we, what are we talking about without having to get too nitty gritty about it? Like just like cocaine, amphetamines, like ecstasy, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was doing, um, I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess like college drugs, but I was, well, for a while I was like waking and baking when I was like a sophomore and junior, I was a total like wake and baker, got high constantly, did mushrooms and acid. I'm like a really sensitive person in terms of drugs. Like I only drink like a glass of red wine now and like two glasses I get drunk, which says something about my biochemistry. Right. And I was just, you know, doing things even though it was making me feel paranoid and agitated and draining my dopamine, lots of ecstasy um, during that period, which is, you know, great and fun. And, um, but like, of course, you know, zaps you afterwards. You have absolutely no horrible hangovers, like increasing, increasingly horrible hangovers. Like the first time. is Besides, Yes. And then you just feel drained and you want to die and super depressed. Right. Um, I decided I was going to teach myself to drink scotch during that period. And I would like buy a <laughs> bottle of scotch and like drink most of it every night. And like, I had like, I never did dishes for months. I was just like, really, I had no idea how to live. I had absolutely no coping skills. Right. I had none. And, so and then, then, you know, I, I thought I was going crazy. I thought, you know, I couldn't sleep and I, I felt agitated. I was having panic attacks all the time and, I you know, got out the yellow pages and called a therapist, the kind of therapist who, like, slid your credit card in the office. And she was like, she diagnosed me as bipolar within, like, five minutes of meeting me after I told her that I had, like, fucked this guy the night before and that I had done ecstasy the week before, you know. That was it? Those things that indicate bipolar disorder? Yes. She okay. said... She said, you know, most people feel and then think and then do, and you 
you feel, you do, and then you think, which means you're bipolar. Do you agree with the diagnosis? No. <laughs> the thing is, though, I was never manic. I mean, I wish I was a manic personality sometimes. I think I would get a lot more stuff done. Me too. I've had that, I've had that conversation. <laughs> that, that, and I don't, you know, that can diminish what these people struggle with. So I don't I know. I, it's, it's, a, it's a silly joke. But, yeah. but I, really, I really never really was. I was maybe, I was maybe a bit manic during that period, I think. I was very um, into school for the first time ever. I was too much a perfectionist. I would stay up all night doing things. So I do think, yeah, but I think that, you know, past therapists who have, like, said that they didn't think I was bipolar, I mean, not that it matters. I mean, it is it is a discursive category to describe, you know, one aspect of pathological behavior. It's just, it's not one that describes my life for the past 10 years. I mean, I'm quite sure that I could be diagnosed with lots of things. It's just not one of them. I'm pretty much a tried and true depressive yeah you know there's but i do think that mania is a defense against depression often so i do think that they those two things can go you know hand in hand in a lot of ways i was just someone who i was i mean i was obviously depressed i mean so were you ever institutionalized or anything or was it just like you just went to therapy and worked it out no i was put on a lot of drugs which is like i went right from street drugs to like a lot of drugs (laughs) which is i think why i'm like such a um I really don't do anything now at all. And I think because the experience of doing so many drugs and being put on so many like I was put on like a cocktail and then they were like, oh, since you're bipolar, you really don't need to see a therapist. That was the idea at the time. It's all chemical. It's all biological. And so it's just about monitoring your biochemistry, which was just like the drugs were way worse for me, particularly than for... I mean, I needed therapy. I needed really good therapy and probably a lot of coping mechanisms and probably trying to figure out, like, how to live life and how to eat, how to have sleep hygiene, like, all that stuff I didn't know at all. But, um, yeah, they put me on, like, a million, like, mood stabilizers, sleeping pills. They basically, you know, take severely depressed people sometimes and they give them an arsenal of ways in which to kill themselves. Yeah. Um, lithium, I was just having, and it was just, you know... Then I just, you know, they wanted to, my psychiatrist wanted to institutionalize me. He said, the drugs aren't working. You know, we'd like to admit her and stop shark treatments. I think she's a candidate to be, you know, there for a while, an institution under my care. And for better or for worse, my parents, who again, we said, you know, are very oppressive, were like, we're taking her home. That's how I came to live at home. I mean, that's not great that they kind of, like, were like, there's nothing wrong with you. That could be anyone. Because obviously there was, you know, there was a lot going on with me. That was, you know, I was very troubled. Um, and maybe, you know, you know, definitely was going through some mental anguish, if not mental illness. Um, I'm still very conflicted on looking at the sort of, psych, you know, the medical model of illness. I think a lot of it was social for me and cultural and just how I've always dealt with stress and pressure and internalized, you know, violence. But, um, you know, went home, I weaned myself off the drugs. I started intense therapy and I got better. Did it help? I mean, like the intense talk therapy? I think he was really good. I really liked my therapist. He was like Santa Claus. I really liked him. And then, saw him on one of those local shows where like everyday citizens go on and discuss what like restaurant they like the most. There was one in Chicago called Check Please. And he was on Check Please and he was just like such this like 
smug man on sex week. So I was like, I can't go to him as a therapist anymore. <laughs> like, it was like this really weird. He was like t- talking about this jazz place, like that played smooth jazz. And oh. this was a very weird experience. <laughs> but, You're like, smooth, no, he's very smooth good. He's jazz, a great smooth jazz. Yes. As soon as he starts talking about smooth jazz, it's time to switch therapists. I think I was really lucky that I found a therapist. Um, and it was the same, you know, office that I had gone to another therapist there as a ch- child. And, um, you know, and my family didn't talk about therapy. I was like, I was like the oddball, the weird person. I was, you know, going through therapy. I had to go through therapy. But it was, a, it was you know, I still had several more years of fucked upness. But I do think it was good for someone to, you know, tell me that I was fundamentally okay. And that there was something, you know, fundamentally worthwhile about me and that um, that I shouldn't worry about labels. That the labels weren't really important and it was important for me to, you know, come to terms with who I was and try to be okay being in the world. I think that was really, you know, I think if, if I could have seen someone else, I could have, could have really changed, you know, the course of my life. Um but yeah, I think therapy can be really, really good. I think there's a lot of bad therapists. I think there's a lot of good therapists. Yeah, it's like it's you know, it's like important to find if you can find a really good one. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been able to find a good one for a while, but yeah, he was a really, he was a really good, and he was like not about labels at all, which is, which at that, that time in my life, it was, it was good for me to. Um, to think about my identity outside of any labels. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, it, it fills in a lot of the dots and it makes like your work resonate that much more. Like it makes, makes it all make more sense if, if that makes any sense. And I could sit here and talk to you for like another hour, but <laughs> I feel, I fear, I fear that, um, you know, I don't want to keep you. And I feel like, uh, well, fun, ben. yeah, it was, super I want to know what feminist, I want to know what other feminist literature you're, reading well you've got to email me i'm like yeah, i've also got to like pre-apologize for being the slowest reader but i've got a two-year-old and like it's just a fight for me to get to pick up a book and like have a have the peace and quiet needed to do it but um you know, I'll email I, you suggestions. no yeah i mean that's what i did i put i you know before i quit facebook i posted on facebook uh you know tell me what to read and i got all sorts of great suggestions so i'm going to work my way through it and then like there's references to books and heroines that you know i've taken note of and that's usually the way that I, that's usually the way that i work my way through reading anyway you know you sort of pick up suggestions from other books and mm-hmm. um you know i'll keep you posted i i've thought about maybe writing essays in, in response to what I'm reading and what I learned, but oh, you should. I do. I want to. I just, I just want to make sure that they're worthwhile. Like you know, because like the thing right. about the thing about it is that like it might have to be, it might be essays as I go, or it could be like one big essay when I'm done. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. we'll, we'll have to see what, yeah. what happens. But um, heroines, you know, kicked it off for me, and it's a great book, and I'm just grateful to you for taking the time to talk with me about all this stuff. Thanks so much, Brad. This is fun. <laughs> All right, I think that's it. That's the show. That is Kate Zambrino. You can find her online at katezambrino.com. She's on the Facebook. She's also on the Twitter, where her handle is at Daughter of Fury. And her new book, once again, is called Heroines. It's available now from Semiotext. Semiotexty. Uh, so be sure to go get it. And don't forget to get Ron Curry Jr.'s new novel, Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles. That one drops on February 11. You can pre order it today, this second. And uh, be sure to sign up for the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com, $9.99 a month. 
It's an amazing deal. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to get the Other People app, the free official app of this program, available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is the best and easiest way to listen to this show, to access the archives, to keep up with new episodes, etc. I think I'm pretty much done. I'm all talked out. Uh, This was a big one. It felt like a big one. uh, I feel like this was uh, substantive. I feel uh, substantive right now. Please remember that Sarah Bernhardt was known to sleep in an open coffin and that the last diary of Sylvia Plath was destroyed by Ted Hughes shortly after her death. That is all for now. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. As always, I will be back again in just a, a couple of days with another conversation with another writer. It will meander. It will uh, take unexpected turns, which is what I think meandering sort of means. So I just repeated myself. Hopefully you'll be here too. Hopefully uh, at this point you're addicted to this podcast. Are you addicted? Do you have a problem? That is my goal. I want you to have a problem. I want to infect you. I want you to consume my content uh, voraciously. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just uh, at this point, I'm just reaching. I'm just throwing in canned applause at the end. I don't know how to end this. This is a consistent uh, trouble for me is how to end the podcast. What, how do I close on some sort of satisfying note, which I guess is a problem that I kind of have when I write too. How do you end the thing? How do you end the novel? How do you end the story? How do you tie up all loose ends? How do you make things feel thematically whole? How do you uh, deliver?